here I am. So we're going to jump back into the letter of Philippians chapter 3. Um, and uh, we're going to start off with, with verse 1. But uh, I'm going to pray. So Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you again. We ask that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation of your glory, of the depth, of the height, of the width, and the length of your love for us. And I, through this letter, Philippians, I pray that you would open your word to your people now. Speak through me. Let my words be yours. And let your word accomplish the purposes for which it is sent. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. The Apostle Paul uses the Greek words for joy and rejoicing 16 times. In only, there's only 104 verses in this letter. Six 16 times he mentions joy or rejoicing. The Greek word for rejoicing, Cairo, means to be glad or delighted. Now, stop right there. What's there to be glad about in 100 degree heat and wearing this monkey suit? What's there to rejoice about? What's there to rejoice about from Paul's perspective? He's writing this letter from a Roman prison cell chained to a Roman guard with his enemies, the Judaizers, spreading malicious rumors, teaching a false gospel. It's a situation that is completely opposite to what one would describe as joyful. Yet Paul tells his readers to rejoice. Now, rejoice in what or rejoice in whom? In the Lord, of course, he says. For the Apostle Paul, the Lord refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, he refers back to chapter 2 because Jesus humbled himself. He suffered and died on a Roman cross. He is highly exalted by the Father and every knee will one day bow to his universal reign and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2, 6-11. Now why is it safe? Why does he say... It's safe for you. Why is it safe for them to rejoice? Because it is a sin not to rejoice. Let me say that again. It is a sin not to rejoice. And my favorite author, C.S. Lewis, of course, I've got to throw the first quote in there. He says, I think we all sin by needlessly disobeying the apostles' injunction to rejoice as much as anything else. Now, I'm, I don't do this too often, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to one-up C.S. Lewis. Because before the Apostle Paul said that, made that into an injunction, it was actually an injunction in the Old Testament. God's people are both commanded to rejoice and characterized by rejoicing in the Old Testament. God's people, the Israelites, were told in the Psalms, over dozens and dozens of times. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Psalms 149.2. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. 14.7. Rejoice in the Lord. 97.12. Serve the Lord with gladness. 102. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous and shout for joy. All you upright in heart. 32.11. Then God commands all nations to rejoice in their maker. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. 67.4. And even commands the natural world to join in the joy. He says, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Psalm 96.11. Have I made the point? One reason the Bible is so relentless in insisting that we rejoice is that God is good. All the time. He is good. David Mathis, the pastor at City's Church in the Twin Cities said, the imperative to joy in us is based on the indicative of good in God. You shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you. 
since Deuteronomy 26:11. Joy is the fitting response in the receiver, that's us, to the goodness of God, that's the giver. That's just verse 1. Verse 2, verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. See, Paul was quick. Uh, I preached last, last month on how quick he was to commend the saints for their faithful service, and he did it in chapter 2 with Timothy and Epaphroditus. Remember that? He's also quick to call out the opponents of the gospel, as he does in this case. It's the Judaizers who insisted that the Gentiles or the non-Jews had to first convert to Judaism and to obey all the Old Testament ceremonial laws in order to be saved. This is completely opposite to the true gospel that came to us by grace through faith. And Paul considered that teaching to be deadly to both the Jews and non-Jews alike. Because while the Old Testament law was holy, righteous, and good, we know that, it is unable to save people from their sins, which we can see today in the streets of Chicago. It is the root cause for all of our problems. It's sin. The law serves as a mirror. When we hold it up, it shows us how far short we fall of God's righteous standards. And does, it doesn't give us perfect righteousness, which can only come through the life, death, resurrection of Christ. And Paul uses the strongest language to denounce these false teachers. His tone of voice is as furious as Jesus' denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, when Jesus said, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What's ironic in verse 2 there, 2, we're back to verse 2, guys, is that Paul used a derogatory term and turns it back on these Judaizers. Now, in our day, a dog is known as a man's best friend, correct? Not in that day. In the ancient world, some Jews used the word dogs to refer to us, to the non-Jews who were considered ritually unclean. Well, here, Paul says that the Judaizers, not the Gentiles, deserve to be called dogs. He further calls them evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh. Now, why didn't he just go out and say circumcised? No, he said those who mutilate the flesh. The Greek phrase there is a play on words. It's kat katatomen. It's a play on words with the, the actual word circumcision, which is peritome. The Judaizers' supposed badge of pride turns out to be the sign of their own destruction. Now, men, let me speak to the men for a minute. I don't know too many guys today that wear circumcision as a badge of pride, okay? But in that day, they did, all right? They did, and Paul turns it on them and said, you're mutilating your own body. You're destroying your own body. Verse 3, he says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Here, Paul goes on to contrast those promoting physical circumcision with the true people of God, those who are circumcised in their hearts, those who worship God in spirit and in truth, John 4. They glory in Christ Jesus, we put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 3 mentions, this is something I've never, I never paid attention until I uh, prepared this text. Verse 3 is one of those rare instances, again, where all three members of the Trinity are mentioned. God the Father, Christ Jesus the Son, and Spirit of God, which is the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, Paul says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5 circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. God bless his word. The problem with these Judaizers is that they put confidence in the flesh. That is, they bank on their works for justification. And in verses 4 to 6, Paul, Paul said, I can play that game too, guys. I can play with the best of you. If anyone else thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. He then ticks off. He, he lists his ethnic and religious pedigree, his impressive educational uh, and legal accomplishments. Then he does a bait and switch. He does a bait and switch here. He said, everything, guys, everything I've accomplished in my lifetime, over my lifetime, I consider it rubbish. Now, that's very, very kind in the English word. In the original word, it means human waste, refuse, excrement. I consider it rubbish, rubbish, garbage, excrement, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Paul was presumably cut off from his family connections and his previous support base. Well, you know, today we have this federal protective program that protects the identities of individuals who agree to serve as federal witnesses on behalf of our government in criminal, high-level criminal cases. They're given a new Social Security number, a new identity. Uh, they go and live and start their new life in an undisclosed location. This is what happened to Paul. As we know, his former name was Saul. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest Christians who might be there. He encountered the resurrected, risen Christ and was blinded by a dazzling light. And as I always say, he was knocked off his high horse. Okay? Saul met the living, risen Christ on that road to Damascus and his entire life outlook changed. And this is where we begin to call him Paul. The conversion not only changed his name, it changed his world. It rocked his world. He was now a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. He was convinced of Jesus' resurrection because he saw him with his physical eyes. And by the way, that's one of the proof that you can be an apostle, is if you saw the risen Christ with your own eyes. In Galatians 1.12, Paul said that when he received his gospel by revelation from Jesus Christ, the eyes of his heart had been opened in order that he came to understand the good news. He gained a new identity. Well, in our American culture today, there is not a more powerful driver that dominates people's lives like the search for their identity. Trust me. Two of the oldest questions that continue to gnaw at people keeps them up at night. Two questions. Who am I and where am I headed? You can see these themes played out in all of our movies, like Luke Skywalker and Star Wars, roaming around the universe, trying to figure out who he is. We got Princess Elsa and Frozen. I was hoping some of the kids would be here. Well, Elsa felt terrified that people would discover what she's really like. And think about this famous line from uh, the first Rocky movie, when he said, all I want to do is go to the distance. I just want to go the distance so I know I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. 
This issue with finding our identity is a larger problem in our lives than most Christians would like to admit. I've been on the London train system a couple of times, and every stop, every stop, the announcer goes like this, approaching Reading, approaching Waterloo, approaching Westminster, mind the gap. When I first rode the, the London train, I couldn't figure out what they were talking about. What do you mean by mind the gap? That's all they'd say. I, you, you, you get the, the drift right away when, you, when you're about to step off the train. You notice there's almost a two-feet gap <laughs> between, the, between the train and the platform. So that's why they said, mind the gap. Well, in America, we, you know, we, we, we just put in more plain language. We just said, you know, watch your steps as you get off the train, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that that gap between our faith and Christ what we know and what we actually do with our real lives, that gap is about as wide as Niagara Falls. Here's what I'm talking about. So we come to church. We come to church on Sunday morning like this. We hear some great truths taught, taught in our Sunday school by some great teachers like Mindy Cobb and Morris Brown. We hear truths preached from the pulpit. We hear that God accepts us and Christ died for us. Our identity is not in what we do or have done, but in what Jesus doesn't, has not accomplished, which is nothing. He has accomplished everything for us. So we're good, right? Well, you leave out of here, you leave out of these doors on cloud nine, you're high as a kite, and you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. When Monday morning comes, right, you fight to get out of bed, right? I know I do get back in the rat race all over again. You report into work and you work and you just know, you know that the value in that workplace is measured by those for whom you work and those whom you work alongside. Okay? Your heart would rise and fall depending on whether you're successful or applauded or you would deflate in disappointment when you're criticized or when you fail at something. You wonder why you can lose your patience or snap at other people so easily. You may even do it just 10 minutes after getting up from your devotions and prayer. Or you become overly judgmental or critical of others. You see how large that gap is between what the gospel said is true of us, we're forgiven, accepted, and secured, and how we actually see ourselves? There's a chasm between what we say and what we actually experience. Don't feel bad. The Apostle Paul went through the same thing every day of his life. He says it in Romans 7. Remember? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Most of the time we're discouraged by our lack of spiritual progress. And we're exhausted by our own efforts. Sometimes we, we become frustrated and cynical. We wonder if other people were reading the same Bible or sense the same disconnection. You feel all alone. You, you feel like a fraud. Anyone been there? I have. I have all the time. I tell you what, it's no fun. Well... In the next few messages, I said few ma messages because this message isn't going to close the gap alone. Hopefully we'll close the gap between what we know and what we do. This being united with Christ is, hands down, the most important aspect of the Christian life and the most important biblical doctrine that you've never heard of, union with Christ, which is the message of my sermon. John Calvin said, first, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we're separated from him. All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. That's some strong language. Calvin goes on to say that the indwelling of Christ in our hearts, that mystical union is accorded by us the highest degree of importance. Jonathan Edwards said, by virtue of the believer's union in Christ, he does really possess all things. The, great, the late great J.I. Packer, who passed away this past week, by the way, 
He said communion between God and man is the end to which both creation and redemption are the means. It is the goal to which both theology and preaching must ever point. It is the essence of true religion. It is indeed the definition of Christianity. So the greatest treasure of the gospel, greater than any other benefit of the gospel, is the gift of God himself. John Murray said, Nothing is more central or more basic than our union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It holds it all together. So what we learn from Paul's testimony in Philippians 3 is that union with Christ gives us a completely new self-understanding found outside of ourselves in Christ. Union with Christ gives you a new identity. Again, this goes completely counter to what our culture says, which is you are what you make of yourself. Union with Christ tells you that you can discover your real self only in relation to the one who made you. You are not and you cannot be self-made. Union with Christ tells you that you can only understand who you are in communion with God and with fellow believers. In Colossians 3, 1 to 4, Paul says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. See it at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things other, that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul said that our union with Christ not only gives us a new identity, it gives us a completely different mindset, a new way to interpret everything that happens to us. It's, it's not so much what happens to you that defines you. It's how you interpret what happens to you. Thank you. Your mindset is the lens through which you begin to see the world. Your identity is formed by your mindset. You want to see your new mindset that Christ offers us and the new identity that you have is much more attractive and compelling than that mindset and identity that you previously had. Again, the world has conditioned us to think like Princess Elsa from the film Frozen. Yeah. When she's saying, don't let them in, don't let them see, be the good girl you always have to be, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. There's no right, there's no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. I never thought I'd have to watch animation half a dozen times in preparation for a sermon. <laughs> but this is the cultural moment that we're living in. It's the age of autonomy. It's the age of individuality and freedom. Everybody wants choice. It's the age of the selfie and the selfie stick, which assumes we each have a true, authentic self hidden somewhere within us, and that's the path to human happiness. And you see it on Facebook and Twitter. And fulfillment involves discovering and expressing your true self out there. It says we must be free from any external authority. Throw off the, the guardrails. Throw off the, any kind of authority or expectations that others put on us that might constrain who we really are. Today's culture suggests that you're in total control of your own story. You're free to choose. I mean, think about this. I mean, this is not the Wii phone. It's the iPhone. Thank you, Brother Morris. It's no, it's no longer the, 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 I, uh, the, the Wii Mac. It's the iMac. Everything is Wii, Wii, Wii. And it's tailored to your individual whims and choices. As if I knew how to set this thing. But here's the problem with that mindset of rugged individualism. Dr. Alan Ehrenberg, the author of The Weariness of the Self, he explored why depression has become the most diagnosed mental disorder in the world. He reported that the incidence of anxiety and depression is higher today than it has ever been. We've got more choices. 
He attributed this rise to depression to increased feelings of inadequacy arising from the social context in which our success is attributed to and expected of the autonomous individual. I mean, if it's all up to you, then you fail, and who do you have left to blame? We're living in this age of anxiety, unlimited freedom that often leads to paralysis, okay? You know, I'm glad that McDonald's across the street simplified their dollar menu. I really do, because it just got to be too much. I mean, we bought into this lie that unlimited choices leads us to happiness, and instead, what unlimited choices has led us to is more dissatisfaction or discontentment with the choices we have made. So in the end, instead of being satisfied and contented, we become fearful of making any commitments in our relationships. Less content than we've ever been. And here's the irony of that song. This is where I had to go back and watch Frozen. Let it go. Princess Elsa is singing about her choice to exercise her power to be free. Remember this scene? She's locking herself up inside an ice prison of her own making. She sings, I'm free, while guaranteeing that she is locking herself up in her own prison. The gospel, the good news. Kids, I'm not knocking on Frozen, okay? It's a great animation. Watch it. Be aware of what you're watching, because everything has a worldview. The God, tell the truth, that's right. The gospel, the good news, is the way the Holy Spirit turns our eyes away from ourselves and our selfies and onto Christ, okay? The gospel brings you into union with Christ. Christ enters your heart and gives you faith. And by that faith, by that faith, you receive Christ in all of his fullness, and faith fixes our eyes on Christ and rests in Him. Okay? As long as, as your will is set on following Christ, you can rest in the choices you make. And as Christians, as ch children of God, we'll fall down flat on our face all the time. But God picks us up. God picks us up. Because Christ is the perfect one. We're not. You don't have to be... You don't have to be frozen in fear because your life is no longer in your hands. You can surrender your plans to Christ. He has joined your life to His and His to yours. And to embrace our union with Christ may feel like a most formidable attack because it will require leaving the life you've always known. Only Jesus, who comes in from outside of our lives, can set us free from our obsessive self-concern. You can exercise your new identity as one who is united to Christ by reframing this conversation that's going on in our heads. The constant voice that narrates your life that began speaking to your soul when you wake up each morning. The voice that naturally, this, this happens naturally. You get up and you say, I, what do I want to do today? What should I do today? What does this mean for me? What's happening in our, in our city and in our world? I think I need to blank, blank, blank. But you can practice the truth that Christ has married his life to yours by including him as our constant conversation partner. What should we do today, Lord? What are you trying to teach me through this, Lord? What is happening, Lord, in our world? How should I understand this? Instead of running a conversation with yourself, which only reinforces the broken idea of I, I, I am at the center of reality, choose instead of to converse with Christ about what you see, what you hear, what you read in the newspaper, but what is happening and what you're afraid of. Tell them. This is about reshaping your self-understanding so that it becomes second nature. You know, WBEZ Public Radio did uh, an interview with a series of people who, Americans who lived in Paris, okay? They interviewed this black, black young lady uh, on uh, this program called This American Life, and she was contrasting her experience as a black woman growing up in America with now living as a foreigner in Paris, France. She said, I was always an outsider. 
I was always an outsider in America as a black person. A lot of folks feel that way right now. And I feel most inside right now where I am most outside. That's what freedom is about, though. It's not about nothing left to lose. It's about nothing left to be. You don't have to be anything here. <laughs> That's the freedom of the gospel. You have through your union with Christ, there is nothing left to be because you are already His. So getting back to Paul's life, because you guys, I'm sure you want me to wrap up this message. His Roman citizenship, no, you don't want to take the time, brother. His Roman citizenship, his studies, his privileged Jewish family background with his friends in high places now meant nothing to him compared with knowing Christ. Verse 7, we're at verse 7 and 8 and 9. But whatever, gain, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Union with Christ grounds us in a way no other mindset ever could if you could choose define your identity in Christ, you will lose nothing of what makes life beautiful and free. You will lose nothing. You will gain everything. You will move from searching for a lost identity to being found in Christ. See what he says in verse 9. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith on the basis of faith. So after we've answered the most important question of who am I by finding our identity in Christ, we ask a practical question. Where am I headed? Well, Paul gives us two scriptures that answers this practical question. First is in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose and who love him. Jesus came from heaven in order that the image of God might be restored in us, in you and me. And because of Jesus, we now know what that image of the invisible God looks like. He rescued you in order that you might become fully human. So why are you here? To become like Jesus. Why are you here? To become a full human being. That's where you're headed. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Greek word there for workmanship is poema, poema, where we get the English word poem, poem. You are God's poem. You are his work of art. As a matter of fact, you are his masterpiece. There's no one else. He made quite like you as he restores, as he restores his image in you, which had been lost. As you become more like his son, you're becoming more and more yourself. More and more the you God dreamed up when he first dreamed you up. As my daughter likes to say, you be you. You be you. Not only does God call you towards the glorious destiny of being conformed to the image of His Son, but He also has in mind specific good works for you to do. This is the destiny God sets out for each of us, to more and more discover who you truly are as you more and more give yourself wholly over to Him. Your identity is that you are created uniquely by God. Your destiny is to have the image of God restored in you. What you are to do along the way is walk in the good works He prepared beforehand for you to do. This is radically different, radically different of what, it's a different vision of what it makes for being fully human. Because the joy, the peace, the fulfillment we're looking for can never be found by simply expressing ourselves in our liberty and freedom but only by giving ourselves wholly over to God. Only if we seek what we were made for, which is to know God and to love Him above all else, will our joy and fulfillment follow. 
But if we seek to please ourselves, we will find neither joy nor fulfillment. And by following Christ, we don't become something less than ourselves, nor do we become something more than human. We become more and more human and more and most being ourselves as God made us. In Christ, you are becoming more and more like God's vision of you and for you. Our destiny is not only to see Jesus, but also to be like him. And this glorious destiny is assured. It's guaranteed. It is guaranteed. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say that we rejoice in our sufferings in Romans 5.3 because we can interpret everything that happens to us, the ups and downs, the good and the bad, through this new perspective. Every ounce of suffering becomes a stepping stone as God's workmanship is created, being perfected in you. If we go back to our text in Philippians 7 to 8, since he is assured of this destiny, Paul doesn't just say that his past accomplishments are as nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He says more than this. He says, whatever regains to me, I now consider as loss. It wasn't just that those former wins don't compare. It's that Paul considers them losses because they distracted him. They distracted him and kept him away from his true glory and the highest good, which is what? Knowing Christ. And verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is, comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Found in Christ here means being spiritually united to him and therefore found not guilty, not guilty before God as the divine judge because God imputes Christ's perfect, perfect obedience, perfection to the person who trusts in him for salvation. Not only that, union with Christ means that when God looks at you, he sees your life as hidden in Christ in his perfect life, in his perfect obedience. Christ not only declares us holy, he empowers us to be holy. As J.C. Ryle puts it, Jesus is a completely saved, he's a complete savior. He doesn't merely take away the guilt, the guilt of a believer's sin, he does much more. He breaks the power of sin in our lives. Jesus cleanses us he cleanses us from both the penalty and the power of our sins. He's the double cure. He not only de declares us holy, he empowers us to be holy. Union with Christ means Christ is in you. The presence and the power of Jesus now dwells within you by his Holy Spirit. And I will wrap up. This is a classic, ba classic Baptist sermon. You say you're going to wrap up half an hour later, you know. The goal of trusting in Christ is in verse 10. We can pull up verse 10. The goal of trusting in Christ is to know him. To know him. That is, to know Christ in a personal relationship and also to know the power of his resurrection. Namely, the power Christ exerts now from God's right hand. But this power is made known as the believers share the same kind of sufferings Jesus faced, the sufferings that accompany faithful witness in a fallen world. Last month, I, I shared about the experience of those Coptic Christians, 20 or so Coptic Christians who were literally beheaded by ISIS as they were kidnapped, beheaded on a beach. The good news is that those who suffer with and for Christ will attain the resurrection of the dead. Those Coptic saints will attain the resurrection of the dead, even as Jesus did. Union with Christ gives us a new identity, but to accept it requires leaving behind the life we've always known. In order for us to embrace the joy of Christ, we must face the terrifying vulnerability of our true sinful condition, true sinful condition, that without him we can do nothing, John 15, 5. Our union with Christ enables us to face the gap 
that I talked about, the face, the gap between the faith that we have in our real lives with clear-eyed honesty and with unfettered hope. And it is this high view of God that Paul gives us a picture in verse 12. And I'll close with this. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. The gap between the here and the not yet does not discourage Paul, neither should it discourage us. Rather, it inspires him to pursue Christ, who has already taken a hold of him. Okay? Saints, Christ has already taken a hold of you. You have been given life by the author of life. Now, we've got to press on to live more and more into this abundant life. Every life is better. Every day is better with Christ at the center of our lives. But that means Christ must become more and more the animating center of all you do and say. That's union with Christ. And it is a lifelong journey. You're not going to find it in a day or two. It is a lifelong journey to discover. And I really well close with this story. John Newton. John Newton was the, the pastor in Eaton, uh, England in the 18th century. And he wrote what is probably the most famous hymn of all time. Everybody here knows Amazing Grace. Well, its theme of redemption is one John Newton knew quite well. As a young man, he was a sailor. And even among those rough bunch of sailors, John Newton earned a reputation. In one captain's words, John Newton was the most profane man he had ever met. Well, after deserting the Royal Navy, Newton got involved in the slave trade. During a violent storm at sea in 1748, Newton cried out of his soul to God, and he found religion. It wasn't the first time he found religion, but for some reason this time something real happened in his heart. Newton's life began to change. He stopped drinking and gambling. He began to pray and read the Bible. Yet he continued in the slave trade for several more years. His song can make it sound like the work of God's amazing grace in our hearts is deep and immediate. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. But in John Newton's own life, it was a long journey between now I see and actually seeing clearly. As a pastor in his letters, he openly shared his struggles with sin and temptation his own deep acquaintance with the gap that I talked about earlier, which is why his letters of spiritual comfort today are still masterpieces of devotional literature. You can read them for your devotions. It wasn't until 1788, get this folks, 40 years, 40 years after he found religion, after God's grace found a wretch in him that John Newton would write, I hope it would, will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business of which my heart now shudders. And he stopped the slave trade. There were 40 years between John Newton's conversion and his conviction regarding the evils of the, of the slave trade. That's 40 years for the gospel to do its deep work in his heart. The grace was amazing that first day, but it took 40 years for grace to take root and blossom in John Newton. And for this, for the man whose name is synonymous with amazing grace. Saints, it has often been said that the longest journey, the longest journey a person will ever make is that journey from their head to their heart. May the unparalleled, unparalleled power of our union with Christ help us along in that journey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have made us 
you have made us for your glory. And we're, when we're not instruments of that glory, we are nothing, Lord. Forgive us, Father God, for our unbelief. And if union with Christ is the greatest good, then unbelief, Lord, our unbelief is the greatest sin. Whatever our sin is, yet no sin is like this union from Christ by unbelief. Lord, keep us from committing this greatest sin in departing from you. For we can never in this life perfectly obey and cleave to Christ. When you take away our outward blessings, it is for sin and not acknowledging that all that we have, all that we have, all that we are, Lord, is of you. And not serving you through what we have. And making ourselves secure and hardened, hardening our hearts, Father God. Cleanse us from every sin. Cleanse us, tear down, smash down the idols in our lives, Lord, that do the most hurt to us. Divest us in love. Divest us of the blessings that we may glorify you, Father God, more and more. Cleanse us from every sin. Make us holy. Help us to become holy, to desire to love you more and more every day. Help us to hunger and thirst after you. The more our hearts are broken over sin, the more we pray that it may be far, far more broken. Lord, forgive us the sins of our youth. Keep us from our hidden sins. Keep us from all things that turn to unbelief or that pull us away from our union with Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask uh, Brother Michael to uh, close us uh, with a song. And uh, after our service, uh, I'm going to ask the, the members to stick around. We've got just just brief uh, a couple of updates for you on our pastoral search process and a couple of other outreach items, other announcements, and we'll let you go. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Oh, Lord, bridge that gap, Lord, between our head and our heart.
about Elder Jocko. Bless his holy name. 10,000 reasons. Amen. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. You've got more than 10,000 reasons. So we pray that as we are dismissed today, walk with us, talk with us, help us to leave this place, but not from your presence, Lord. Pray that you would go with each one, you would strengthen each one, you would help us to draw so much closer to you, so that the radiance, your glory, may be spread to those who don't know you, Lord. We pray for the week ahead. Pray that we would become the aroma of Christ to those who don't know you, Lord, so that they may come to know the true living God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise, glory, and the honor. In Christ's name, amen. Have a good week.